let's stand and take our Bibles, please, this morning. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Uh, members, if you'll look around you, if you see someone who doesn't have a Bible or doesn't have a King James Version translation, would you help them find that? We're using the King James Version translation so that you can follow along with us. And we're praying this morning it would be a blessing to you. How many glad you're in church this morning? Say amen. amen. I'm thankful I'm in church this morning. God's doing some great things. How many thankful for the cooler weather? Amen. What a difference, 100 degrees on last Sunday and whatever it is right now, we've had 70 and they said this week in the evening it's going to be in the 40s, so don't get sick, I don't want to see our tennis go like that next week there, so stay healthy, start putting a jacket on and take more vitamin C and stay healthy and come to church tonight and you'll get, you'll, you'll encourage you, right? Amen, that's good. John chapter 20, look at verse 11. This is such a good chapter, I wish I had time to preach the entire chapter, but we don't. But uh, notice verse 11, and we'll try to get through this so you can get to lunch here. I hear some stomachs growling right now. How many can hear the stomachs growling? Amen? Yeah. That's, that's your neighbor next to you there. All right. Verse 11, which you notice is, But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. And seeth two angels in white sitting the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? And she saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid them. Now I want you to make a footnote there because I might forget to tell you this. She is so overcome with grief, she doesn't even fathom that she's talking to angels. Did you catch that? I mean, there's an angel at the, the foot of this slab and at the head of the slab. And some Bible students say, what a wonderful picture that was of just uh, a reminder of the mercy seat, how the cherubims overshadowed the mercy seat inside the tabernacle. And the, the great, eternal, completed mercy seat was Jesus Christ. Amen. And uh, he's not there, but she is grieving and uh, she doesn't even notice in the moment of her grief that she's talking to angels. Let's, it gets better. Let's keep going here. And so the Bible says in verse 14, And when she had thus said, she turned back and saw Jesus. Now watch it. She sees the angels. And she saw Jesus standing. But notice this next thought. And she knew not that it was Jesus. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? This is the second time she heard that question. Whom seekest thou? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him thence, tell me where thou hast laid him. Would you notice this next phrase? And I will take him away. Now, James, Peter and John are gone. She had followed them back to the tomb. She went there early, as we'll see. And she's there by herself. There are the women that are really not part of this conversation. That, and she said, listen, show me where that body is. I'll bring them back. Now, you've got to talk about a little. She's got, reminds me of my grandmother, 4 feet 11 inches tall, probably 90 pounds dripping wet. She said, I'm going to carry the, the body back of this man. I mean, she was so determined to find the body. And would you notice this? Jesus saith unto her in verse 16, Mary, and she turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. And Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. 
But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Father, this morning, the choir, oh my, they so stirred my heart and I believe the heart of our congregation. And they sang about the cross and the resurrected Christ. The words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 1.18, I'm alive and was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. Hold the keys of hell and death. And then, Lord, to see Wendy follow the Lord in scriptural baptism this morning, stirring our hearts. And the offering that's been taken up by loving attendees and members, Lord, it's been good. But, Lord, we come to the place, the engine that drives the machine, the preaching of the Word of God, centrality of the worship of God, the proclamation of God's Word, revolving itself and bringing us closer to you. And Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw men to myself. And we know that speaks, of course, of Jesus being lifted up on the cross. And we also know that he's no longer on the cross. He's risen. He's alive. He's no longer on the, on the cross. And we seek to lift him up this morning as a, not just crucified, but risen and coming again. Father, I pray that you will uh, stir up our hearts. And I pray that, God, you'll help us to be a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And give understanding, Lord, today and quicken us today. And I pray the Holy Spirit who lives inside of every believer will be our teacher and giving us understanding of the things of God. And I pray that, Lord, you'd prick our hearts about this matter of faith that we just sang about and realizing we've got to stop clinging and start believing. And so, Lord, help us to see the examples and story and the doctrines that are unfolding in this passage of Scripture. And we'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people say, amen. You may be seated. The doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ, the doctrine of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the crux and foundation of Christianity. Without a risen Christ, your faith is in vain and my faith is in vain. We look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and if he, if he didn't rise from the dead, he's nothing more than a dead martyr. And if this morning you're here and you're somewhat skeptical about who Jesus Christ is, and that whether or not he's the Son of God who rose from the dead, I invite you, I challenge you to do a study, an objective study, and get into the history and the facts about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Time does not permit me this morning, but I do want you to notice some things by way of background because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the one compelling work of God that proves without a shadow of doubt that Jesus Christ is alive. And listen, you could go to every grave and every tomb where there was a religious leader and you'll go there and you'll find their bones and you'll find their remains and you'll find some evidence of DNA that that person's remains are there. But I challenge you this morning to go to the tomb where our Savior was buried and you'll find no DNA there you'll find no remain you won't find it then you say well where is he he's in heaven he rose again from the dead and I remind you this morning it was not a spiritual resurrection it was a bodily physical resurrection Jesus Christ arose flesh and bone listen his blood was shed on the cross there was no need for blood anymore he was flesh and bone he was alive he was eternal then just as he was at, 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 just as he's always had been because the bible says jesus christ is the same yesterday today and forever the bible speaks to us about the evidence of the resurrection when you look at matthew 28 mark 16 
Luke 24 and John chapter 20, we see that all of the witnesses there corroborate their witness together about Jesus Christ. When Christ was put in the tomb, the Romans the, were, were concerned, the Jews were concerned that he would, uh, that someone would come and stay, take his body and fraudulently represent that he rose when they really stole his body. So they, they requested that the Romans put a seal across the boulder that covered that, that sepulcher. Now a Roman seal, if you know anything about that, a Roman seal was a legal documentation. It was a legal strip. It's kind of like when you, you see the police when they go into a crime area and something bad has happened and they yellow tape it, you're not supposed to cross that line. Okay, to do so without proper authorization could get you into very serious trouble. Or a building where the building department puts a, a, a letter saying you cannot enter these premises, that would be a bad thing. A Roman seal, to break that Roman seal and go past that would, would, would uh, incur the wrath of the Roman government and most likely your death. The, the Roman seal was broken from inside, not from the outside. The Roman seal was broken. The stone, which was very heavy, was rolled away. The stone was moved away. The keepers that were there, and there were Roman soldiers that were there, they all fled away. As we look at chapter 20, I want you to notice this this morning. In chapter 20, we see something that we get a little bit more insight in from John as well as Luke. And the Bible says in verses 6, uh, verses six and 7, at something they saw that was very intriguing. It says in chapter 20, verses 6 and 7, Then cometh Simon Peter, following him, that is following John, and he went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lying. Now what Peter saw there when he saw the linen clothes lying, he didn't see someone that shredded off these garments or shredded off the, the wrappings that were around him. Literally, a body came out of it. It was, it was a shroud that was there. It was just a linen clothes. The body came out of those clothing. And P Peter saw that, and he was amazed. And he didn't really know what to say. He was speechless at this. He saw the linen clothes lying, but there was no body there. It had the shape, but there was no body there. And then notice this. In verse 7, he said, And the napkin, sometimes translated or thought of in, in, in another, and, and, uh, and when you go back behind and looking at the, um, the actual translation of the word, it could be called a handkerchief. The napkin that was about his head, they didn't wrap the person individually with the same linen. They put something what they called a napkin or handkerchief, which they put around the head. You go back to John chapter uh, 11, we read about that where then a similar napkin was placed around the head of, uh, of Lazarus when he was, when he was uh, inside the tomb, his tomb, and uh, he needed assistance to take off the wrappings, and he needed assistance to take off this napkin, and basically they covered the head and the face of the individual with something separate. And the Bible says here, verse 7, something interesting, the napkin that was about his head, not lined with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. So literally what rep was represented there, if you look at the evidence, the body came out of the clothing, the, the wrapping that was around it, it was taken off and folded very carefully and laid by the side. Now if somebody wanted to steal the body and take it, they would not have taken the time to unwrap the, 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 the body. And if they did, you'd find wrappings all over the place here. Not only that, you would probably would not find the napkin neatly folded by itself. It gave evidence that someone gave a very careful attention to coming up out of that body, pulling off, taking off that, that, uh, that linen napkin and folding it up and putting it by itself there. So we have the evidence there, which we'll say more about in a minute here. The the tomb was empty. When Peter and John got there and the women got there, the tomb was empty. There was, there was substantial evidence pointing to the fact that Jesus had rose from the dead. And then there were the eyewitnesses. 
All 11 apostles saw Jesus Christ. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus that we read about in Luke 24 saw Jesus Christ. As we'll see this morning, the very first witness of his resurrection, the very first person to see him was Mary Magdalene. It was not Peter. It was not John. It was not any of the apostles. It was Mary Magdalene who was the very first witness. Mary saw him. And we see the conversation that Jesus had with Mary. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, there were over 500 witnesses of some. Now you figured out, if this was a court of law, if you could parade 500 witnesses before them, it would be pretty, it would be pretty overwhelming, compelling to say that these people saw Jesus Christ here. I mean, there were the eyewitnesses. Paul saw a risen Savior. Read about that in Acts chapter 9. So we see the evidence. We see the eyewitnesses. We see the exclamation when, they, when, they, when the lady women got there. We have the record of this in Matthew and Mark. They said basically, he is not here. He's risen from the dead. And I want to tell you, to hear that, that was music to the ears of anyone who came weeping and sobbing. He was not there. He was risen from the dead. Later on, Peter in his preaching would say this, whom God has raised up, having loosened the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. And I love that in Acts 2.24. It was not possible that he should be holding of it. I want to thank God this morning that God is a powerful God, that death could not hold our Savior. Death could not retain him. A boulder could not keep him on the inside. The linen clothes could not keep him. Hey, thank God this morning we have a miraculous, supernatural, eternal, all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing, omnipotent, omnipotent, Almighty God that rose again from the dead. Amen. Now as we look at that this morning, I want you to center your attention with me because we preach about the resurrection on and off through the year. And I could preach it again, I'd love to. But I want you to see something this morning of how the resurrection of Jesus Christ impacted the life of a broken-hearted woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. And we're going to center tonight, this morning, around Mary Magdalene and the resurrection. We're going to center today as we see that more is said about Mary at this resurrection appearance than anywhere else in the Gospels about Mary Magdalene. And we're going to dispel any, any false things that the media and others have said about Mary Magdalene. We're going to dispel all that. And I want you to see that of the great disciples of Jesus Christ, she was one of the great disciples of Jesus Christ. And she teaches us something in this passage of what it means to have real faith in a resurrected Savior. Let's look at Mary this morning for the remaining time we have because we don't have a lot of time. But let's look at Mary. And I'm going to give allusion to some uh, reference to some of the scriptures. We may not have time to read all of them. But I'm going to give some references to you today. And I want you to see some things about Mary. First of all, would you notice Mary and her past? Mary and her past. And the references you can look up later on are Luke chapter 8, verse 2, Mark 16, verse 9. Now, the very first mention we have about Mary is her past. We're told about Mary's past. And uh, we have to look at this for a moment to understand where Mary is at right now in John chapter 20. The first thing we find about Mary is the Bible says over there in Luke chapter, excuse me, Mark chapter 8, verse 2, and certain women which have been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. The first thing we see about Mary is that she had a demonic past. This woman had a demonic past. The very first mention we have about this woman that she's spiritually, she spiritually possessed, she's spiritually troubled. We find this woman that is in deep, deep trouble. Now, I don't know where you're at in life, but I found that as we get older in life, there's a tendency that we have more trouble. Amen? The Bible says, man born of woman, his days are few but full of trouble. We have trouble all the time. We have trouble with the fathers. You might have creditor trouble. You might have health trouble. You might have family trouble. You might have financial 
financial trouble. You might have stress trouble. You may have job trouble. You may have something troubling you, and whatever it may be, but all of us have some form of trouble. And the first thing the Bible tells us about Mary's past is that she was a woman that was consumed and filled and possessed of evil spirits. Now, I want to tell you this morning, Satan is a real predator. Satan is a real foe. He's called a dragon. He's seen as a serpent. He's called a roaring lion. And as a roaring lion, he walks about seeking he may devour. If you know anything about lions, lions don't go after the strong prey. They're always searching and watching. They're under survey. They're survey doing surveillance of prey. And they're always going looking for the young and the helpless and the ones who are distracted and distant from everybody else. They want to get the ones that they can get that are easy to catch. And Satan's looking for those who are in that same capacity. And I want to help you this morning. If you're a new Christian, you want to be in church as much as you can. You want to be close to the Lord because Satan's looking for that moment of weakness to attack you. If you're a Christian who's somewhat distant and disconnected from the rest of the body of Christ, I want to help you this morning. Satan is looking to attack you and to go after you. If you're someone who's struggling with sin in your life, you're weak in your Christian faith and you don't know your Bible very well and you have a tendency to have fears and tendency to have little faith in things. I want to tell you this morning, Satan will try to attack you and we need to be very wary of that. And whatever it may be, we don't, we're not told where Mary was at and what she did and what she engaged in, but we're told that she had seven evil demons in her. Now I thought about that for a little while and I thought, well, you know, Satan is a great imitator. He likes to fake people out. God is told, we're told over in Luke, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 11 about the seven spirits of God, which are all manifestations of the attributes of the Holy Spirit. And those, those, those seven spirits of God are wonderful about His holiness and about His wisdom and about His understanding and His courage that He gives us and things of that nature. And Satan is a great imitator. And for whatever reason, Mary was filled with these seven demons, which were the opposite extreme of the seven spirits of God. And these seven demons, which represented fear and uncleanness and lack of faith and weakness and powerlessness and uh, doubtfulness and all of these kind of things there. And she had these demons that held in bondage. And I don't know about you this morning, but I've had a little bit in the ministry of having encounters with people that have been literally demon-possessed. And, and uh, they are, this is true and this is real, that there are people that are still literally can be demon-possessed when they give themselves over to excesses they should not. The Bible sometimes calls things that control us our strongholds. And these strongholds begin by when they capture our mind. And listen, Satan is out after your mind. I don't believe there's ever been a time in human history, unprecedented, where there's more mental illness and there's more depression and there's more suicide suicidal thinking and there's more discouragement and people are downcast in their lives and their thinking is all warped and messed up because of Satan getting a hold of them because of maybe a traumatic event or maybe because of a substance abuse issue or maybe because of a disappointment that happened in their life and it got a hold of them and became a stronghold like a headlock on their life and they couldn't get let loose of them and they're filled with worry and anxiety and fear and that's where Mary was at. Mary was not a normal person being possessed with demons. She had worry. She had anxieties. She had fear. She she ran from people. She was disconnected and all of these things. Oh, Mary had a demonic past. Let me remind you this morning, maybe you're not demon-possessed, and praise God that you're not. But if you're not demon-possessed, I remind you today, Satan has one goal. He wants to destroy your soul. Satan has one goal. He doesn't want to see you go to heaven. Satan has one goal. He wants to keep you away from God. He wants to keep you from having fellowship with the God of heaven who loves you. And I want to tell you today, even just by virtue of the fact 
we've mentioned here from the scriptures about Mary's demonic past, I would caution you this morning to be very vigilant in your Christian walk. But the Bible says we need to be vigilant, to be sober and be vigilant because the devil walks about as a roaring lion seeking he may devour. Oh, listen, this Mary, she's introduced as, as a woman who had seven devils. But I'm thankful to tell you today that despite this woman's troubles, she had no peace, she had no rest, she had no happiness, she had no friends physically, mentally, spiritually, socially. She was troubled. I'm thankful to tell you that though she had a demonic past, thank God she also had a delivered past. Amen. Thank God this morning Jesus came into her life. Thank God this morning Jesus came into her life. Jesus found this hurting woman. Jesus found this woman that was possessed. And listen, the Bible says he cast those devils out. You say, how did he cast it out? He just spoke the word. Amen. He spoke the word because his word is all powerful. And listen, Jesus through his word, if you'll obey his word and listen to his word and submit to his word and be compliant to his word, his word can give you victory over sin as well. Amen. And we're thankful this morning as we look at Mary, she got a delivered past. Satan got a hold of her, but Jesus came into her life and Jesus showed that greater is he that is in you, Jesus Christ, than he that's in the world. He cast those devils out. You know what Jesus did? He went to that home. He served an eviction notice. He served that eviction notice. said, get out, devil. Get out, demons. I own this lady right now. I own her soul. And I'm thankful today when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what possession Satan's had on you. And it doesn't matter what kind of anger problem you've had. And it doesn't matter if you're filled with rage and you're filled with vengeance against somebody. And it doesn't matter this morning if you're filled with hatred that leads to murder. And it doesn't matter today if you've been a, you're a victim of some kind of substance abuse that's controlling you. Maybe some kind of alcohol abuse or drug abuse. Or maybe something that has possessed you that has got you all wrapped up. I want to tell you today, when Jesus Christ comes into your life and by faith you get him in your life, he serves an eviction notice to the devil. It says, devil, get out of that person's life. I own them right now. You need to exercise faith in Jesus this morning. You need to repent of your sins and have repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ so that eviction notice can be served on Satan in your life. I want to tell you this morning, Satan wants to invade your home. Satan wants to invade your home through the television. Satan wants to invade your home through entertainment and social media and through the cell phone. And Satan wants to invade your home through other pressures that you have. And Satan wants to put a wedge between husbands and wives. And Satan wants to put a wedge between children and parents. And Satan wants to put a wedge between church member and church member. It doesn't matter. Satan is a mastermind of all those things. And listen, today, we need to latch hold of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ so he can come along and serve an eviction notice to Satan and say, listen, I've got these people now. They belong to me. They're blood-bought. They're saved. They belong to me. And I want you to know, Satan, that you have no place here. And I remind you today, as we look at Mary, we see her past. Oh, listen, today, are you someone like Mary? You're distraught. Are you someone like Mary? You're spinning. Your life is spinning out of control. Are you someone who's been troubling your life? Thank God this morning you can have a delivered past. Jesus Christ gave her forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ overcame those filthy, dirty, unclean de demons. Jesus Christ gave her freedom from these evil spirits. Oh, praise God this morning that Jesus gave her a delivered past. We see Mary in her past. We notice very quickly, secondly, would you notice Mary in her passion? Now, I like this transition because as we look at Mary, she's delivered of her past, but the next time we read about Mary, she's at the cross. You say, Pastor Fong, what happened to Mary between the time that she got delivered from those demons and to the time she's next mentioned about, the, about there at the cross, which we find over here in, in John chapter 19? Well, I believe Mary was just a, I think she was, I think she became, she was a disciple of the Lord. I believe she put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be her Savior. And I believe she was a good disciple. I think she just stayed in the background. I think she just had a servant's heart. She wasn't making a lot of noise. She wasn't trying to draw attention to herself. She just knew one thing. I've got to grow in the faith. 
and I'm just thankful Jesus came into life. And perhaps as we read the scriptures, nobody was more thankful for what her deliverance than Mary was. Mary was thankful that God delivered her. She was thankful that she now had peace where there was unrest. And she had freedom where she was in bondage. And she could think straight where before she could not think straight. And where her thoughts were clean when one time they were dirty. And her speech was cleaned up where one time was filthy. And her life was turned around. And she was so thankful for that. But we go over here and we see Mary at two critical moments. We see the passion of Mary. Passion is a driving desire and feeling you have for someone else or something else. For instance, I will say this. I'm passionate about the ministry. I'm passionate about Jesus Christ. And by that I mean that I'm, I'm just my driver, my desire is to glorify him and to preach his word and to get the gospel out. And I think and live and breathe and eat and think about Jesus Christ and serving him. And Mary was a person that was driven in her heart about being passionate for the Lord. Listen, this morning, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a man or woman or boy or girl. It doesn't matter if you come from a hurting home or from a happy home. It doesn't matter if you come from a depressed home or delighted home. I want to tell you today that when you get a passion for Jesus Christ, and you should have a passion for Jesus Christ, it changes your life. You think about him and him alone. A man by the name of Count Zinzendorf, he was a leader of the Moravian movement during the, during the Middle Ages, and that Moravian movement was a group of men during Europe who had a great heart for God, working their way through France and through Italy and through the Swiss and places like that and advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ in spite of all the persecution and Count Zinzendorf is quoted saying I have one passion and one alone that is Jesus Christ and I want to tell you this morning don't come to church just seeking to be just a, just a, a, a marginal Christian or being someone that's just a nominal Christian I want to encourage you today as your pastor be someone who's passionate about Jesus Christ amen be passionate about his word and be passionate about fellowshipping with him and be passionate about giving out the gospel and be passionate about taking a friend day flyer and giving it out and telling people, I want you to know about my church. There's a great church and God's doing some great things there. So where's Mary? Well, go with me to Matthew, you know, John chapter 19. And look at verse 25. We see Mary at the cross. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. Her passion is seen at the cross. Now please visualize me for a minute where she's at. The cross was a symbol of shame, of suffering, of cruelty. The worst form, we said this last week, the worst form of Roman punishment on a person. And this wasn't the Jesus on the cross that, she, that, that touched her life who was, had his clothes on. And his beard was in shape. And his face was well arranged. This is a Jesus on the cross that was unrecognizable to human man. If we take the account from what the Bible says in the book of Isaiah, his, face, his facial features were completely disfigured from the beating and from the pummeling and from the tearing of the hair out of his, the facial hair out of his face. He's beaten. He's bleeding. Blood is all over the place. I mean, his back is torn to shreds from the scourging. He's got a crown of thorns on his head. Blood is flowing down his face. This is a beaten Jesus, a bleeding Jesus, a bruised Jesus, a Jesus that is gasping for breath. This is not a Jesus she saw that was muscular and strong at that moment. This is a Jesus where physically everything was taken out of him because he endured all that for you and I. We get over to verse 25 and it says that of the women that were there, Mary Magdalene's name is mentioned. She was passionate about Jesus. Ask yourself this question. 
If you didn't know everything you know about how the story would unfold, would you have made the journey to stand with Jesus at the cross? Would you? I think 98% of us, 99% of us, would probably have been like everybody else. You see, there are those Jews who ranted and raved and said, crucify him, crucify him, and they just made up in their mind, he must, there must be something wrong with him. All those sinners at the cross. But Mary never forgot what Jesus did for her life. How she was delivered. We see Mary standing at the cross. Watching Jesus die. Watching his life ebb from him. Watching his breathing become more shallower. Watching that the blood that was dripping profusely become more clotted up because there was less oxygen getting to his blood and there was less liquid in his body and the blood now becoming thicker and coagulating there. And she's watching Jesus die and the breath go out of him. She is at the cross. She's standing at the cross. At the most critical moment of our Lord's ministry, Mary is among a handful of people standing there identifying in their devotion to Jesus Christ. Oh, this morning, would you consider her passion at the cross. She's identifying her devotion with Jesus Christ at the cross. She not only stood at the cross, but you notice she stayed at the cross. It's one thing to come to something and to stay there and to, and to stand there for a few moments, but she stayed the entire time. As we read all the gospel accounts, she stayed the entire time. So if we have to think about it for a minute, if she came at 9 o'clock in the morning when they crucified him, and then they declared him dead somewhere after 3 o'clock. And they had to hurry and take his body off, the tr off that cross and prepare it to put in burial before Passover, which would start at 6 o'clock that evening, which would be the next day. You can imagine, she stayed there maybe as long as 9 to 10 hours, if not longer, watching all this unfold. The Bible doesn't tell us if she came two hours earlier. I think word got out throughout the community about what was happening there. She may have gone there early, just knowing what we read here. I can't say that, but you, know, you can assume that. But for a minimum, she's there 8 to nine hours perhaps there she stood at the cross and she stayed at the cross listen in devotion and in passion it's one thing to take your stand that you follow the lord in baptism you take your stand with god and you sign a covenant of faith saying i agree with the doctrines of the church it's one thing to take a stand and i want to thank you for taking a stand but it's another thing listen beloved it's another thing to take a stand it's a whole different thing to, to, to stay with your stand to stay at a church there there's something to be said for somebody who's a disciple of jesus christ they're in their same place you're one, and they're the same place, you're five, and they're the same place, you're 15, and they're the same place, you're 25. I'm just saying today, listen, don't grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap, but we faint not. I encourage you this morning to be a passionate Christian. Stay there. Look at Mary. She was devoted. She stayed there by the cross. She stayed there by Jesus' side. She stayed there in a the devotion. Listen, we're going to have up ties, and we're going to have down ties. We're going to have building offerings that are good. We're going to have building offerings that are down. We're going to have times where the finances are good, and we're going to have times where the finances are down. We're going to have times we're going to be rejoicing together. And there are going to be times we're going to be questioning and disappointed with each other. But I want to encourage you this morning. Don't be a temperamental Christian or carnal Christian who just, when things, when the wind blows a different direction, you go another way. Stay by the stuff. Stay there in your devotion. Stay close to Jesus Christ. Walk with the Lord. Don't let things that you hear and bad news that you hear take you and distract you from following the Lord. Be passionate about Jesus Christ. And whether it's at the cross or whether or not it's at the cross, you stay right there with Jesus Christ. She's passionate for him at the cross. But notice we see she's passionate for him at the cave. Notice in chapter 20, verse 1, the very first person to come to the tomb. The Bible says in verse 1, the first day of the week. What day is that? Sunday. Sunday. Mark that. 
We're not under the Sabbath. The law is finished. We're under, the, we're under grace right now. We're not under the covenant of the law anymore. Watch what happens here. The first day of the week identifies itself with the resurrection. Why do we worship God on Sundays? Why do we celebrate Jesus Christ Sunday? Because it was the first day of the week. He rose again from the dead and he established a precedent for church worship and the honor of God right there on the first day. Because listen, listen, we were not under the law anymore. The law is, is good and the law is our teacher pointing to God. But thank God for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works lest any man should boast. So we look at chapter 20 verse 1. On the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early. Now notice John puts a spotlight on Mary. There may have been other women with her according to the other gospel accounts but the spotlight is on Mary. You have to understand what's going on. Mary has watched Jesus die. She has stood at the cross and she stayed at the cross. And then Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come along. These were secret disciples who came out at that very last moment and identified themselves with Jesus. And Joseph begged for the body of Christ. We see that in the earlier verses. He begged for the body of Christ and Pilate gave him permission to take the body down and both these men together they wound up the body in the linen and put the napkin around the head they, they, they basically prepared the body for burial Joseph donated his tomb he gave that tomb that was never used before to be for Jesus to be buried in and uh, while they were doing that the Bible says Nicodemus bought a hundred pounds of aloes and myrrh and that's a lot of just you know the aloes and myrrh hundred pounds weight and they as they wrapped him up they started putting all the aloes and verse there to kind of slow down the, the smell of the decaying process that would eventually happen because they just assumed he was dead. They assumed that he would decay and, and he would rot just like every other dead body that preceded him. And so they prepared all this, but they had to do it quickly because they also had to get the body into the tomb before Passover began or they would be in big trouble as far as the Jewish law was concerned. And from all accounts, we know most likely Joseph and uh, Nicodemus didn't finish the process of preparing the body for that purpose. So Mary is watching from afar. We know this from one of the other guys gospel accounts. Mary's standing at a distance and she's watching all this and her heart is beating and her heart is concerned because remember Mary's passionate about our Lord Jesus Christ there and so she's thinking you know what tomorrow is Sabbath and she says you know you know the Passover is going to come out then there's going to come Sabbath day and I can't do anything and so I've got to I've got to wait here and so as soon as Passover was done then came Sabbath the Bible tells that Mary and those women they went and they bought some spices to prepare for the body now I want you to notice some things about Mary here at the, at the cave Mary spent an amount of money to buy more spices and she got up early that morning to prepare those spices to anoint the body and she got up early that morning the Bible describes that she got up when it was still dark before dawn so the likelihood is Mary may have been up at three o'clock in the morning to go out there to be there to walk the distance wherever it was from her house all the way to the, the that that garden area where the sepulcher was at to walk her way there and I want you to imagine it's at four o'clock or so in the morning long before the sun will rise up now that's great sacrifice that is great sacrifice for someone to come to a body that's dead to think that maybe in her own mind and other people's mind that perhaps he's a deceased hero and so his ministry is gone but she never got out of her heart and mind the greatness of Jesus teachings and the greatness of Jesus miracles and so she's thinking I've got to come there and I've got to show my final respects and she's just weeping and grieving and the Bible says she came there and uh, she, with these spices and all these things and there at the cave she sees the stone is taken away now my, my focus for you this morning is this there at the cave, 
even there, though in her mind Jesus was deceased, but though he was risen, she came there with great devotion. She came there with a passion for the Lord. She decided in her heart, no matter what it is, that I'm going to give my best to the Lord. I want to make sure if this is the last time I'm going to see him, if this is the last time I'm going to say goodbye, I want to make sure I give my best to the Lord. May I suggest to you this morning, if today was your last day to live, give your best to Jesus Christ. Show your love to him. Show your passion to him. Devotion and passion says it doesn't matter what the cost is. It doesn't matter how long it takes. I'm going to show everything to let my Savior know that I love him and I'm consumed with them. That's why I love what 2 Corinthians 5.15 says. If you'll turn there or look in your notes, 2 Corinthians 5.15 defines for you and I what real devotion is. It says, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. You see, Jesus died for our sins. Thank God for that. He paid the price for your sins and mine. When he paid the price, every sin debt was paid in full and there's a zero balance. But when when he died for us, he had a purpose. The Bible says that he died for all because God wants us to be here to live for him, that they which live, that's you and me, should not live for ourselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. You see, when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead, he gave you and I a purpose in life. He gave us meaning for our life. He gives us a direction for your life. Listen, if all you're doing is getting up in the morning and making your cup of coffee and you're going to work, you're punching in and punching out and you're going increasingly spiteful of your job, you can't wait to retire. You you can't wait to get away from your job. You just, you're tired of your boss. You're tired of your manager. You're tired of the routine. You're tired of doing the same old thing. You're, fighting, you're, you're tired of finding the traffic in the Bay Area. You're tired of all those things. You're tired of the cost of living. And your dream is, well, I know I'm going to hit retirement age and I want to do all these things. Listen, those things are all good. But if you're at that place in life, there's more to life than just reaching retirement. Can I hear an amen, all right? There's more to life than just reaching retirement. And there's more to life than just punching it out and getting an award for putting in your 20 years or 40 years at your employer. And there's more to life and having a, than having a bucket list of places you're going to see. You see, the greatness of life is not found in a place, and it's not found in, in, in things. It's found in a person. That person is Jesus Christ this morning. When you find that purpose in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, and Paul wrote about this, and that he died for all, that they which live should no longer live for themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Why do Christians get excited for the Lord? And why do Baptist Christians get on fire for God and come to church Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night? I mean, what, what, what could you possibly say? What is there in the Bible that can help me? I'm going to tell you if this book has inexhaustible riches, and this book is filled with gems and gold and diamonds and things that are still waiting for you and I to go into that mind and to mine it out and to extract it out and to realize the goodness and the grace of God and the mercies of the Lord and a God who loves us and just to wrap our arms around the book and realize today God loves me and God cares for me and God wants me to get more out of my life. Listen, you're not going to get more out of life by doing the same old thing. You'll get more out of life when you get committed to Jesus Christ. Mary's passion. It didn't matter there were no disciples. Listen, none of the apostles were there at the cave. Where are the men? Where are the men? She's passionate about our Lord. We see Mary in her past, and Mary in her past. But quickly, would you notice Mary in her pain? Verse 11 tells us about this pain. Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping, lamenting. Grieving as she wept.
You have somebody who's grieving and they're weeping, crying. You feel at a loss for words. You feel at a loss to how do you comfort someone like that? The more profusely they weep and the tears come out, though you don't, you're not in their shoes, you, you feel a little bit of the pain they're feeling. You're feeling a little bit about the, 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 the piercing in their heart. You have to remember, Mary is the first one to go to the tomb, but she didn't go inside the tomb. In chapter 20, verses 1 to 9, she goes to the tomb, she sees the stone is rolled away, and her heart is moved. She's thinking, where's the body? She's not thinking resurrection. She's not thinking of risen Christ, a powerful Christ. She's not thinking the Son of God is risen from the dead with healing in his wings. She's not thinking about that. She's thinking, where did they take his body? And so immediately she runs back home and she runs back to the disciples and she knows she puts herself under submission to the church leadership. And she says, Peter and John, she says, listen, I went to the place where they laid our Lord and he's no longer there. And so they run back to the tomb and they're, they want to see what's going on. And I find it kind of amusing. The Bible says Peter and John ran there. And remember, both those men are heartbroken. And Peter especially because Peter's feeling really bad because he denied our Lord. And he looked face to face with Jesus after the, after the crock crowed. And he thought, man, I denied my Lord three times. And John, John was there at the cross. But God is feeling ashamed because he offered no, uh, other than taking Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, back home to, be, to care for her. He's just feeling that there was nothing I could do for Jesus. And so both those men go there and they're running. And they're both running there to the the tomb and John being a little bit younger and probably a little bit lighter in weight outruns Peter and he's the first to go inside the tomb and John goes inside the tomb and he, he looks around and he comes right back out and then comes Peter but Peter runs all the way into the tomb John runs through the tomb but Peter runs into the tomb and he goes into the tomb, and we have the account there that Peter literally saw the, the linen clothes lying there there was a shroud and he saw well somebody didn't take this off they came out of the body now, you know when somebody's taking their clothes off, if they take it off, it's just, they kind of leave it lying around. But this was just, it was just as if a body was there, but the body's not there. And he's scratching his head thinking, man, what happened to the body there? And you got to remember that the sun is still slowly coming up there, and it's still a little bit dark there, and they're inside this cave. And, and, then, there, and then he looks, and he sees this napkin. And this napkin is folded on the side all by itself. And he says, hey, listen, uh, whoever folded it was the person who had the napkin around his head. And he's thinking back in his mind of John chapter 11 when Lazarus was, came out of the grave and Jesus and Lazarus come forth and he had to tell people, loosen him and let him loose. He had to have help. I mean, I don't know about you, but I kind of amused myself. I kind of wonder how did, how did Lazarus come out? He probably walked like this. You know, he probably walked like that. Or maybe he did a hop come out. I don't know, he did a Lazarus. I'm not sure what he did, okay? But he got out, amen? But he had to get these grave clothes off and somebody helped get the grave clothes off and they said the napkin, they took the napkin off his face and they looked at Lazarus and he looked like he never died. And so Mary, Mary, Mary's watched this, and the Bible says John looked in there again after Peter came out, because Peter, you can see this look on Peter's face that he studied the situation. He's thinking, the linen clothes are there, and the, cloth, and the, and the napkin's there. It's as if he rose again for the dead. Yes, he did rise again for the dead, amen? And Peter, John looked inside again, he saw the same linen clothes. The Bible says John saw and believed. What Jesus wanted them to do, listen, Jesus didn't want them to see and believe. Jesus wanted to be the place where you believe and then see. That's faith. So they walk away. Mary's followed them all the way back to the tomb. This is her second time back. Now, bear in mind, this is her passion. She went there to the tomb when it was dark. She brought the spices. She left the spices there. And she went back to tell Peter and John what she saw. Then she comes back with them a second time. And this time she waits until the men are gone. And both Peter and John go back. They're scratching their heads. They're wondering what happened there. And none of the parties that are there have come down on them that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead as he said he would. 
we get to verse 11, we see the pain of Mary. Then, but Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and two angels, and seeth two angels in white uh, sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus lay. Hey, listen, Mary was feeling the pain of the sting of death. In her mind, I'm memorializing Jesus. He's dead. He's gone. Like every loved one that leaves us, there's a sting in our heart. There's a hurt in our soul when they leave. She's facing the pain of death. Her tears are flowing profusely. Look how many times we find in verses 10 and 11 all the way down to verse 19. The reference is made to her weeping. The angel said, why weepest thou? Jesus said, why weepest thou? I mean, I want you to imagine this woman. There she's feeling the sting of death in her heart. Listen, death is a robber. Death leaves regrets. Death, death puts remorse. There's no worse hollow, empty feeling than to know that somebody close to you, no matter if they were saved or not saved, when they leave, there's just an emptiness in your heart. Their seat is empty. They'll no longer be there. She wasn't just feeling the sting of death. Would you notice this? Would you notice this? She's feeling the stress of disappearance. She's in pain. Here's Mary at that tomb. Her face is stained with tears. Her tear ducts seem to be overflowing profusely with weeping. Instead of thinking he's not here, he's risen. She's thinking he's not here, he's missing. Who took his body? Who could be so cruel after everything he went through to steal his body? And after Peter and John are gone, she looks inside the tomb. Would you notice this? She's overcome with so much sorrow. She's been crying so much. She doesn't even recognize those are angels, one at the foot and one at the head. She doesn't even recognize that they're talking to her. They're messengers of God who came in her life at a critical time. She doesn't even realize that. She sees the folded napkin on one end. She sees the linen clothing on the other. She cannot fathom in her mind that Jesus is risen. And so the angels could not solace her, and the angels could not comfort her. And so they said, why woman, why weepest thou? And she says in verse 20, 13, because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they've laid him. She says, I've got to know where Jesus is at. I've got to know where Jesus is at. Hey, listen, maybe you're at that place in your life right now. You're just saying, I've got to know where Jesus is at. I've got to know where Jesus is at. I've got to know where I can find God. And she determined her mind, I'm not going to leave until I find where Jesus is at. And then at that moment of time, that's when the Lord stepped into the picture. Notice verse 14, when she had thus said, she turned herself back. In other words, she was inside. She looked. She spoke to these angels. Had no idea they were angels. She thought they were caretakers. She turns around, and here's this man. And it's still a little bit dark. The sun is not fully up. And Jesus speaks to her, but in her mind, she's overcome with grief and herself. And uh, her mind is still going back to the Jesus that she saw taken off that cross. The Bible says in verse 14, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, but she knew not that it was Jesus. Hey, that can happen to you and me, that when we're going through a heavy trial and a grievous moment in our life, that we can be so overcome that we have the word of God and God gives us a word for the moment. We sometimes might be so overcome with our grief or so overcome with our problems, we don't even know it's Jesus speaking to us. 
And Jesus looks at her and he says, woman. And by the way, as I said last week, the word woman was not being disrespectful. That was in that time, in that day, in that culture, a respectful way of speaking to an adult woman. Why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? And the Bible says again, she didn't even know this was Jesus. She's supposing him to be the gardener. Saith unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, in other words, did you carry him away? If you've taken him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She's feeling the stress of disappearance. Because it's bad enough, she's mourning his death. Now she's mourning his disappearance. She's wondering, where's the body? Where'd he go? I came to pay my last respects. I've got a, several pounds of spices and aloes here that I came to put on his body, and the body's not here, and I see the linen clothes, and she's just thinking in her mind, she's not putting this all together correctly here, that she's just thinking in her mind, what happened to my Jesus, and where is he at? And she's thinking somebody took his body for profit taking, and she looks at Jesus and doesn't realize that's his voice speaking to her, and she's feeling this great pain in her heart. She's saying, where is Jesus? Oh, listen, this morning, you are maybe somebody like Mary. You're feeling this great pain in your heart. Somebody is hurt you. Somebody has stepped out on you. Somebody has betrayed you. Somebody has hurt you. Somebody has taken from you. You feel like your love has been taken away and you feel like you're at a desperate moment. You're wondering, where do I go and what do you do? And you kind of feel like Mary. You feel like something in your life has died. We don't only see Mary's pain, but you notice Mary's panic. When she said in verse 15, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. There was such a determination in her voice. Bring back the body, and I'll finish the job. But just show me the body. And our Lord Jesus Christ, only as he could do, spoke to her by calling her name, Mary. The Bible says, my sheep know my voice. She said, I know that voice. It's Jesus. And she looked at him with tear-stained face, tears still rolling down her eyes. She's thinking, he's called me by my name. By the way, Jesus knows you by your first name. Amen? He lovingly, intimately knows you and I. He calls us by our first name. He said, Mary. And the Bible says she turned herself. In other words, she talked the gardener and was about to turn away because she thought, what, could, what can this man do for me? And by the way, that's how a lot of Christians think. They think when God has not done, it, done something for them at the time you think he should or when he should or where he should, we just feel like, okay, I asked God. He didn't do anything for me, so I guess I'm going to turn away. And she turned herself. She's about to turn herself away, and then she turns herself back to him again because she knew that familiar voice. She knew that voice of authority. She knew that masculine voice that indicated he was the son of God and the word of God was proceeding from his mouth. And as he called her by name, the Bible says immediately she said, Rabboni. Listen, there were three ways you'd greet a Jewish teacher. The lowest form of, of by greeting, which was somewhat of a disrespectful term, was the word Rab, R-A-B. And Rab or R-A-B, you'd basically, if you didn't really, it was kind of a disrespectful, distant relationship where you just said Rab to them. And it wasn't really, it didn't show any patch or indication of anything that you had any feelings toward them. But the most traditional term that you would use to address a Jewish teacher would be the word Rabbi, which meant teacher. And uh, of course, they'd go to the synagogues and they'd go to the temples and they'd say Rabbi. And that was a respectful way of calling them. It's like someone would come to the pastor and they will call the pastor the, uh, the pastor or they'll call him Reverend. Please don't call me Reverend. Amen. 
Pastor's a good name, amen? There's only one reverend, that's God himself, amen? But the highest form of name that, that indicated, listen, that indicated submission to authority and indicated that, you, that someone was master of your life and someone was lord of your life was the fact you'd call that man Rabboni. Listen, it's one thing to call Jesus Jesus. It's another thing to call Jesus Lord, amen? When you call him Lord, it indicates a submission to an authority bigger than you. And she said Rabboni, and the Bible says that she did so. She gave acknowledgement that Jesus was there in her presence, and Jesus was there for her, and Jesus had always been there, but she just never realized that Jesus had always been there. Now watch her panic here. At that moment in time, is to get to fill in the blanks here. We've got to go back to Matthew 28, verse 9. And Matthew 28, 9 tells us that when Jesus appeared to these women, that it tells us that, that, that the women, they, they grabbed him by the feet, they held him by the feet, the Bible says in Matthew 28, 9, and they worshiped him. And I want you to understand, when they grabbed him by the head and by the feet, there was reverence to that respect. But there's something more to that, because you notice in the phrase here, Jesus immediately speaks to her, because the one leading the way, the one holding on the hardest, the one clinging with all her force, the one holding on as if she'll never let go, is Mary herself, because Mary's holding on to Jesus. And Jesus makes a statement here, which you notice that verse, he says, touch me not. Now he wasn't telling her, don't touch me, because she was already holding him. But the word touch me literally means this, to cling to, to hold on to with dear life, to hold on to as if you're never going to let go. And here's what I want you to understand. Mary in her panic thought Jesus walked out on her. Mary in her panic didn't have faith enough to believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. Mary in her, in, her, in her grief, Mary in her brokenness was holding on to the past and Mary was holding on to her fears and she thought, man, this is Jesus and he's alive and she says, and she's not thinking he's mind that he's rose again from the dead. She's holding on and she's saying, Listen, Jesus, I'm going to hold you because I'm afraid if I let you go, you're going to disappear on me again. I'm going to hold on to you, make sure that you don't leave me again and walk out on me again. And listen, with Mary's problem that she had at that moment in time, Mary was holding on with fear when she needed to hold on by faith. And Mary was holding on to the past when she needed to hold on to the future. I'm going to tell you this morning, a lot of Christians get like that. You get saved, you get Jesus Christ your life, and something traumatic happens in your life, and you forget that Jesus is not just dead. Jesus rose again from the dead. You're still thinking back of a Jesus who died, a Jesus who humbled himself, a Jesus who was bruised and battered, and a Jesus who was bleeding. But thank God this morning he did all that for your sins and mine, and he did that victoriously for you. But he rose again from the dead, and he rose again victoriously over death, and he conquered sin and Satan and death. And when Jesus rose again from the dead, he gave us hope, he gave us life, he gave us peace, he gave us a future, he gave us eternity to look forward to. Mary's not holding on to a future, she's holding on to the past. And a lot of Christians are like that. You won't let go of the past, and you you won't let go of your fears. And the Jesus you have is not a resurrected Jesus and a powerful Jesus. You see a Jesus who's weak. You see a Jesus who's dead. You see a Jesus who can't do anything for you. I want to tell you this morning, Jesus is everything he said he is and then beyond that because he's God of gods and Lord of lords this morning. She's in panic mode. You'll never, you'll never grow in faith if you stay in panic mode. Did you hear what I said? You'll never grow in faith if you're still holding on to the fears. You'll never grow in faith until you realize you've got to let go of those fears. You've got to stop clinging and start believing. You've got to stop clinging. Start believing. He said, touch me not, for I'm not ascended. 
Mary, I'm not, this is not the last time you're going to see me. And Mary, I'm not going to walk out on you. And Mary, you're going to see me a little bit more before I send, out, before I send to heaven. But he says, I want you to understand something. Touch me not. Don't keep clinging to me. Don't keep holding on to me as if I'm going to walk on you. Hey, let me tell you this morning. If you're someone who thinks Jesus Christ has walked on to you, I've got good news for you. He never left you. Amen? He never left you. He said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You're saved. Stop clinging to the fears that are holding you back. You're saved. Stop clinging to the emotional baggage that's weighing you down. You're saved. Stop clinging to the painful disappointments of someone who's hurt you and cling to a Jesus who's risen from the dead, who gives us hope beyond the grave and that gives us life that we can live and a victorious Christian life that we can have. This is the faith that overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Beloved, Jesus is risen. Amen? Jesus is alive. Jesus gives us victory. Get out of panic mode. Get out of panic mode. Oh, we want you to hold on to Jesus, but hold on to him because he loves you. And hold on to him because, it's, because you want, you're holding on in faith. And hold on to him because you realize today that you, you just want Jesus to know that you love him with all your heart. When Jesus spoke that he wasn't done, as we close, notice he gives Mary a pathway. He said, touch me not, for I'm not ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father into my God and your God. That's so good. I'm done. What did she learn from all that? Because we don't read about Mary anymore after this. I think there's two things I want you to get we're done. There's a folded napkin. There's the linen clothes. There is the boulder rolled away and the royal Roman seal that was broken. Jesus standing in front of her, bone and flesh, a glorified body. He's risen. And he refocused her, her thinking, her mind, her heart. There's a pathway, Mary. When you turn around and leave the spot, there's a place for you to go. There's something for you to do. And here's what he says again. He says here, now listen, I, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I send to my father and your father and to be my God and your God. He said, go to my brethren. Number one, here's the pathway God has for you. Number one, be a committed, all the way in, member of the local New Testament church. Oh, let me say it again. Be a committed, all the way in, member of the local New Testament church. Go to my brethren. Mary, you've been on the distance. You're disconnected. You're on the outside. Listen, emotionally hurt people are always disconnected. You don't have to be shy. You don't have to be disconnected. Hey, get on in. He said, listen, go to my brethren. Get involved. Get connected with the local New Testament church. Why? Because it's the body of Christ. She was looking for a body, but God gave her another body to think about, and that was the body of Jesus Christ. She said, I want you to care for that body and to love for that body. What is that? That's the local New Testament church. How do you become a member? You get baptized. You get saved first, amen? Get saved first. 
Then do like Miss Wendy did and follow the Lord in spiritual baptism. Then what do you do next? Then you go to a membership class that we're holding right now on Wednesday nights. While the Wednesday service is going, come to the membership class so you can learn. We had a great class this past week. We learned about the history of our church. It was a great, a great study. It was a very invigorating, refreshing study. A reminder of all that God has done with this local body here. You see, Mary, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to ascend. And I'm going to assume my great ministry is your great high priest interceding on your behalf. But you're going to stay here, Mary. Until I take you home, Mary, I want you to stay here and go to my brethren. And I want you to be part of that large body of people that are going to take care of that body of Christ. I want you to take care of his local New Testament church. Now, I don't care what kind of church background you came out of. I don't care what kind of church you came with, Protestant, Catholic, whatever you came out. I'm going to tell you something. A biblical church, listen, a healthy biblical church follows Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. And a healthy biblical church stays, they follow the apostles' doctrine, they stand to the preaching of God's word, they get excited about preaching, they get excited about the word of God, they get excited about getting their soul fed, they get involved, they serve the Lord, they serve one another, they have meals together in the church, they do things together. Everything revolves around a healthy body of Christ that is seeking to promote the building up of one another. It is not about taking advantage of one another or politicking or seeing what I can get out of the church. It's not about what you can get out of the church. There comes a time when as a member of the church you realize it's what I put into the church because God died for me and that body represents what Jesus Christ did for me there. There's a second thing. By the way, this pathway, this is what Jesus said in the chapter prophesying uh, his resurrection. David said this, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. There's a second thing. He said, go to my brethren and say unto them, I send to my father and your father and to my God and your God. And the Bible says in verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she'd seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Now, what was Mary at that point of time? She was the first eyewitness of the resurrected Savior. I mean, how would you like to have been the first eyewitness? Amen? What would that have done to you? If you were the first eyewitness, what would that have done for your life? How would that have changed your faith? How would that have changed your outlook? How would that have changed your emotional up, up and down? How would that have changed your life completely? Listen, it changed her completely. He told her, you need to go back and be committed all the way in church. And secondly, he said, you need to be a fervent, all the way in witness for Jesus Christ. Friend is coming up. Get your prospect list. Stop procrastinating. Amen. Fill it up. Fill it up. Then, put it on the floor and pray for them. Then, get the flyers. Go to their house. I'm going to invite you to friend day. Be my friend. You plus one. And I hope there's more than plus one. Maybe you plus ten. Amen. Okay? You plus one. But you bring somebody to church on that day so they can hear the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and learn what it means to be saved. Stop clinging. Start believing. Stop clinging. Start climbing. Stop clinging. Start living. What about my fears? Listen, we love him because he first loved us. And there's no fear in perfect love. For perfect love casteth all, all fear because there's no fear in perfect love. That love cannot be perfected until you come to him. And love him with all your heart. And don't hold him at the feet as if he's going to walk out. He's not going to walk out on you. I'm going to tell you that right now. He's not going to disappoint you. 
But when you hold on to him, you hold on to him in faith, believing, through prayer, and as a fervent witness, and as a good member of the local church, how God can use your life to glorify him. This morning, God did something special in Mary's life. He first became her Savior. God, Jesus Christ, wants to be your Savior. Listen, he can wash away your sins right now. He can make you a child of God. And today, right now, at 1158, you can become a child of God and receive the gift of eternal life. I'm going to invite you this morning. If you're not saved, come to Christ. And then I'm going to invite you today as a Christian. What are you holding on to that you've got to let go of and start holding on to Jesus Christ?